This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we learn about advances in aircraft towing systems and personal flying vehicles. And we also have a story about becoming an airplane geek. I'm Max Flight. This week, I've come out of the New Mexico National Forest, and I'm in Albuquerque for the International Balloon Fiesta, which is about to start as I record this. As with the last few episodes, we're running pre-recorded segments while I'm on a largely off-grid road trip. This time we have an interview with Vince Howie, the CEO of Aircraft Towing Systems Worldwide LLC, or ATS. Micah and I learn about how this company is working to lessen the considerable cost and environmental impact of aircraft movement on the ground. Then our main man, Micah, brings us a story he calls Films with My Father, which explains why Micah is an airplane geek. And finally, Hillel Glazier, our aviation entrepreneurship and innovation correspondent, has another Beyond the Press release interview from EAA AirVenture Oshkosh 2022. This time he speaks with Randy Plout, the CEO of AirEV. The company seeks to create personal, intuitive flying vehicles at a production rate usually associated with automobiles. They recently demonstrated flight and control at their facility in Israel. All right, here's the interview with Vince Howie. I'm Max Flight, and I'm here with our main man, Micah. Micah, how are you doing? Doing just great. We're in the middle of our uh, our last heat wave, although by the time this is aired, that'll certainly be over. But uh, And then we're expecting a really cool, wonderful weekend. Fantastic. Well, we're here today to uh, speak with a, a guest that we have, Vince Howie. Now, Vince has more than 36 years of experience in the aerospace industry at the federal, state, and local government levels, as well as in industry. And in 2016, Vince helped build and incorporate Aircraft Towing Systems Worldwide, LLC, in Oklahoma. And he's now the vice president and CEO of the company. But Vince has been very involved in promoting aerospace in Oklahoma from November 2013 until recently. He was the director of aerospace and defense for the Oklahoma Department of Commerce. He was appointed to the Oklahoma Science and Industrial Development Authority, Oklahoma Strategic Military Planning Commission, the Oklahoma Governor's Unmanned Aerospace Systems Council. It keeps going. And the uh, Oklahoma F-35 Task Force. And he's on the Oklahoma Careers Pathway Subcommittee. Vince also served in the U.S. Air Force for 29 years. And he's a former member of the Senior Executive Service. So the topic today is aviation ground vehicle technology. And Vince, we're really pleased to have you join us on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Uh, thank you. It's great to be here. Boy, you've really, really been active in Oklahoma with uh, all of these organizations uh, promoting aerospace and the development in Oklahoma, I guess. What, where does that passion come from? I, you know, I think part of it comes from my, my dad. Uh, he was in the Air Force during Korea, and then uh, he uh, worked for Tinker Air Force Base as a civilian for, uh, um, I think he worked 28 years there, and so... It just came from dad. Dad was the guy that brought the cruise missile on uh, for the United States Air Force, and I, I just grew up with it. 
Ah, fantastic. Yeah, I love it when someone uh, gives back, I guess I'd say, in, in that way, because uh, with, with all these organizations, all these efforts that you've uh, been involved in, uh, would have been the, we'll, we'll get to the main topic here, but what have been the, uh, the main challenges that you've seen over the last few years, perhaps? Yeah, probably I was the aerospace and defense director for the state uh, for two different governors. Uh, four years I worked uh, directly for Mary Fallon and then one year for uh, Governor Kevin Stitt. And Oklahoma's a relatively small state, but um, aerospace is the second largest industry in the state. It's $44 billion, only second to oil and gas, which is $66 billion. And people just don't realize how much aerospace is in the state and how much how many jobs it generates and the economic impact and what we do for the nation. And so, you know, as, as the aerospace and defense director, my job was to go around the world and recruit companies to come to the state. And, you know, and Oklahoma's relatively unknown in that area, but, but that's probably the biggest challenge. That's great. Well, uh, so ATS, um, maybe we can start off talking about how aviation movement, if you will, around airports uh, occurs these days. I'm, I'm envisioning uh, lots of different methods for moving things around the, the airport grounds, some uh, electric, some fossil fueled. Can you kind of give us a, a sense for where aircraft movement is these days? Yeah, if you think about it, we still move aircraft around airports the same way, way we did 100 years ago. Um, basically, they're moved with thrust, and thrust is the most inefficient way to move aircraft. Aircraft are designed to use thrust to fly through the air, of course, and that's a super efficient way to do it. But on the taxiways, most of the time, they are moved uh, with using airport thrust. Now, around the gate and ramp area, there are diesel tugs that, that move most of the time nowadays. There are some electrics that are out there. Uh, uh, we do have a quasi-competition with uh, one called TaxiBot and another one where uh, it's called wheel tug, where they try to motorize the nose landing gear. But there's nothing like what we have, which is a track channel system to go under the taxiway to take aircraft from the gate to the runway and all the way back to the, to the gate that goes back and forth both directions. And so I think uh, cost is, is probably a large element at play here uh, under the, you know, the current methods for moving aircraft as well as other movements on, on the airport grounds. Absolutely. If you think about it, um, 80% of the commercial fleets out there are made up of 737s or A320s. And that aircraft burns about nine gallons of fuel per minute. The average taxi time in the United States is 16 to 27 minutes. So if you take that nine gallons of fuel times 16 minutes of taxi time times however many movements, and a, and a large airport can have upward to eight or 900,000 movements, but let's just pick 500,000 movements um, that's 74 million gallons of fuel that are burned every year at one airport just to move aircraft around the airport. And then you take that times whatever the price of gas is, you know, if it's $4 or whatever, that's $300 million a year that's used in fuel. So at the same time, uh, they're putting emissions out. The two main emissions that go out at the same time is, is CO2 and, and, and nitrous oxide. And CO2 burn, puts out about 20 pounds of emissions per, um, per gallon of fuel burned. So when you look at that 74 million gallons of fuel that's burned, that equates to about 148 pounds of CO2 that's saved or not put into the atmosphere. And the same thing, about 29 million pounds of nitrous oxide that doesn't go in the air. 
So it's a tremendously expensive way to move aircraft around airports in two regards, in fuel and cost, and then to our environment. And then on the on the environment, uh, there's an interesting report out. It was published by Shell and Deloitte, Decarbonizing Aviation Cleared for Takeoff. And uh, they found that in uh, 2019, the aviation industry accounted for about 3% of global carbon dioxide emissions. And that's pretty much in line with other uh, estimates for that. Um, but a kind of a shocking number is that uh, that number, that percentage is in, expected to increase to 22% by 2050. So that's a, a huge amount of of emissions. And then also from the report, uh, we see that 10% of the emissions could be achieved by just fixing the inefficiencies of taxiing at airports and waiting for landing. So the pollution, the uh, environmental impact of, of this, of course, is is quite significant. But there's also a safety component to this, isn't there, Vince? Absolutely. So what we have is a track channel system. So when the aircraft enters into our tow dolly, which looks like a giant lazy Susan with ramps, it chocks the nose landing gear with those ramps. And at that point, they shut the engines off. And the aircraft, and that's when all the savings occurs, you know, you save fuel, emission, noise. But like you said, then the other piece of it is we have positive control of that aircraft. It can't deviate from that that track. Uh, in fact, uh, so when we take the aircraft in and out, it stays in a particular envelope and it doesn't move for it. So we believe that we'll eliminate a lot of collisions on the ground. Hmm. Um, my best friend growing up is a 787 pilot for Delta Airlines. And he does the Atlanta to Heathrow and Atlanta to Charles de Gaulle hop. So I was telling about this. I said, Rick, you know, I've got I'm working on this project where we're, we've got this track channel system. And I explained it to him. I said, you, what do you think about it? And he said, you know, for me, the scariest time is when I'm on the ground. He said, I'm all the time pulling my window open and sticking my head out and looking at my wingtips saying, oh, my gosh, am I going to clip a plane? Am I going to hit a building? Is there a truck running You know, that's going to hit me? He said, I love your system. He said, boy, I could put my aircraft into it, chalk the nose landing gear, shut my engines down. He said, I'm done. He said, because I don't have to worry about my aircraft hitting anything because the envelope it, that it goes in is predetermined and it won't deviate from it. He said, I can do my post-flight documentation. So he, he actually loved the idea of what we were trying to do. So Vince, describe this track system a, a little bit in terms of uh, how it would be implemented at an existing airport. Sure. So there's three basic components that we have of our, of our system. One is the, the tow dolly, which I was explaining a while ago. It's just like a giant lazy Susan with ramps on it. And it actually bears the weight of the aircraft. None of the weight is transferred to anything below. In the ground is a U-shaped channel with steel plates on it that have about an inch and a quarter gap for those steel plates. Between that gap is two connector rods that connect the pull cart, which is down in that in that channel. That channel is powered. It has a power system with rails on each side to run the pull car. The pull car itself is down in the channel and it consists of a electric car engine. That's what's really allowed us to do this is the evolution of the electric car because you can get a very powerful engine now in a very small size. That engine drives a hydraulic pump which drives two sets of hydraulic motors that actually clamp onto that monorail track down in the system. And that's important for several reasons. 
Again, we don't use weight of the aircraft. We don't use the friction to, to move it. We use 50,000 pounds of side load thrust, ripping that monorail track down in there. And that lets us be an all-weather system. So I can pull aircraft in with an inch of ice on the ground, a foot of snow, the densest fog. It doesn't matter because my traction device is underground. So that's the three main components. And then the other piece of it, of course, is the software. And it's a fully automated system. It is an autonomous system that has sensors on it. So it knows that if a luggage cart runs in front of the aircraft or a deer, it, it, it shuts it down. It knows the spacing of the aircraft, how we believe we can put aircraft in tighter because they're not going to have their main engines running. It knows exactly what gate to go to, the size of the aircraft. It won't overshoot a gate. Um, I tell people all the time, I landed in Oklahoma City the other day. We overshot the jet bridge by three feet. And I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. So I glanced at my watch. 27 minutes later, they finally get a crew out there to push us back that three feet so the jet bridge will line up so that we can get off of it. So all of that is totally eliminated with our system. You know, the obvious question that, that I'm sure comes up all the time, and so I'm, I'm going to ask it, is with, with a, a sub-runway uh, channel, you know, there's, you mentioned it, there, there's snow, there's ice, there's rain, um, and, and how do you deal with things like that? I mean, even if it can maintain the traction, which obvious, there's no doubt that it can, uh, how do you keep all of that out of the, uh, out of the channel and, and out of uh, keeping it from, from filling up and, and freezing up? So the channel has a drainage system in there. So the, the water just drains itself out. The channel itself is pretty much sealed. Um, there's even a rubber gasket that goes over that inch and a half gap as it moves through to keep thawed out from falling down in, into it. Uh, some areas we, we know that we may have to have a heating system down in it, but most of it, since it's subterranean, will not have to have heat because, you know, as you know, underground, it maintains a much uh, more consistent temperature. But with the drainage systems in it, we have the prototype in place. We've had no issues, and we've had tremendous downpours. So how deep uh, below ground, below the runway, is, is the channel? So the inside diameter of the channel is about four feet by four feet, and that depends on the size. So what we've learned with our prototype is right now it's configured to be a one-size-fits-all. Our system is between a 747 and a regional jet. But not everybody has 747s or A380s, as you know. So we're now deciding to go three sizes. So we'll have a large, medium, and a small. The large will be one size fits all, 747 to regional jets. The small will be single aisle down to regional jet. I mean, the medium will be single aisle down to regional jet. And the small will be uh, regional jet and business jet. Why that's important is the pull cart itself can shrink in size because the, what drives the cost is the channel. The size of the channel drives the cost. The bigger the channel, the, the higher the cost. So when we reduce those sizes, the channel gets smaller and smaller. Our smallest channel will probably be two feet by two feet in inside diameter. So I want to make sure I, I sort of get the, the, the picture here. So we have the pull car and the tow dolly. The tow dolly is, is what uh, clamps around the front landing gear. Correct. That's not powered? There is an umbilical cord between the pull cart that's down in the ground up to the pull, up to the tow dolly. And all it powers is the ramps. That's the only power that it has, and then the sensors. So the ramps are down, the airplane drives onto it, and then the ramps fold up, correct? And chalk the nose landing gear, correct? Yes, and chalk that, okay. And then the pull cart as the, uh, the actual uh, movement of the, uh, the aircraft correct. and the tow dolly. Uh, where does the tow dolly come from? How does the tow dolly get to the airplane? 
via the channel. So the channel will be uh, at from the gate all the way out to the runway, to the hold short line, and then it drop the aircraft off there. Once it drops an aircraft off, then it goes via the channel to arrivals. So it'll be in the queue there for the next aircraft coming in. Ah, okay. That makes sense. And this could be applicable at a, at a variety of different facilities, correct? I mean, not not just uh, airports, but uh, MRO facilities or other locations that uh, that need to move aircraft around. But you're pretty fo- pretty much focused on aircraft movement. Is that is that fair? Yeah, it's been really interesting. So we were at the uh, AAAE conference a uh, year, year or so ago. And at that time, we were really focused on major hubs. So about 34 airports really were our target inside the United States. But I had 22 small airports come up to us and say, okay, you tell us the system's modular. Um, can we just buy the pushback piece? And we'd never really thought about breaking our, our system up. And so I went back to uh, Oklahoma State University. I've had them on contract to do our design development work and said, okay, guys, I've had up to five PhDs working on it, in fact. And they developed this curve. We could bring an aircraft in at a plus or minus three degrees and flip it on the inside of this curve. So that led us to open our aperture and go, oh, my gosh, look at all these airports out there that would just want the pushback piece of it. They said the EPA was killing them because – their tugs and tow dollies were dripping oil and gas on the ground, putting emissions in the atmosphere. Then at the same time, I was working with American Airlines up in Tulsa. Uh, that's where their North and South American maintenance depot's at, and they got about 6,000 folks there. And I was talking to the chief of maintenance, and he said, you know, when I bring an aircraft in uh, and they fly in and overnight in Tulsa, we take them to a maintenance bay about a mile and a quarter away and do overnight opportunistic maintenance on them. And it takes me up to 16 people. He said, I love your system. We could just put a point-to-point system in and take them over there and move it with one guy. So that led us down the path of, okay, we need to break this system up and now have three systems, in which we do have. We have pushback at the gate, which just pushes the aircraft back and flips it around so it goes the right direction. And we have a point-to-point ferry system. In fact, we've even been working with a... um, de-icing company to develop some rings where we can, in a sense, make like a car wash where you pull aircraft through on a point-to-point ferry system and de-ice them. And then we have the total airport configuration. So now it's opened our aperture instead of 34 airports up to two to 300 different airports. And then I have also been working with the U.S. Air Force about maintenance facilities, about because in the Air Force, in the United States Air Force and the Israeli Air Force too, I've worked with them, um, aircraft have outgrown hangars. I mean, the wingtip clearances in some of these areas are are inches, if you will. And there, we're looking at putting a system in the air, the hangar that takes the aircraft in and out, where they don't have to be worried. Are we going to clip a wing? Are we going to hit something? So there's a lot of application that we didn't initially see that our eyes have been open to uh, and really broadened our aperture. Hmm. It sounds like it's one of those. Uh big-time investments that uh, people need to come up with the cash up front for for a long-time savings thing and and trying to convince uh, boards or airport directors or, or all that to, to spend that huge amount of money, that, that huge investment over long-term savings can be can be really difficult as it is with, with any large investment. But it also sounds like the savings goes sometimes to the airport, sometimes to the airline, sometimes to, to another part of the organization, and, and, it, and it's not all seen by one group. So how do you how do you sell it? So there's several different ways. Um, 
the initial investment, the initial idea was is that airports would charge a landing fee of roughly 50% of the fuel savings for that particular aircraft during that taxi, because that's easily calculable. And that way, it's a, it's a win-win. So the airline saves the fuel for taxiing, and the airport collects a fee for roughly 50% of that to help offset that. With fuel cost savings alone, you could pay for one of our systems in less than a year. I mean, I don't, no one ever believes me, so I always tell them the ROI is two years. But when you're talking 500,000 movements and you're going to burn 74 million gallons, that's over $300,000 in one year in fuel savings. If you split that between 50-50 um, between the airport or and the airlines, it's a win-win. What we've learned, uh, especially for like pushback and a point-to-point, -point, most airports have revenues, especially it's, it's their fees they, they collect off passenger stuff, where they could fund this themselves. But most large infrastructure projects for airports today are funded through the Airport Improvement Program via the FAA. That's the, where Congress gives them about $3.3 billion a year to the FAA, and they spend those dollars. So we've been working with the FAA for the last three years to make our system FAA AIP eligible. And so we've working also through our senators, through Senator Inhofe, who's uh, putting language in the 2023 approach bill to have the FAA develop a standard for our type of equipment. So currently there's no standards for our kinds of equipment in the FAA. If they develop that standard, that makes us AIP eligible so communities can can apply for those matching dollars. And they're usually, you know, 80, 20, 75, 25 matching dollars to help pay to put this infrastructure in the ground. At the same time, we were at the AAA, I mean, we were at the um, uh, ground, the ground support expo in Vegas not too long ago. And I had uh, leasing companies come up to us and say, hey, we lease airport equipment to airports and ground support equipment to airports and um, airlines. Are you interested in having a third party do this? So we're engaged now with the idea of having a leasing company come in, install this, and then they charge a fee to the airport and airlines, and it's a, through a third party. So there's, there's multiple ways to fund this. And I think every airport, you know, like they old saying, once you've been to one airport, you've been to one airport. And the funding <laughs> structures will all be unique depending on the airport. So it would seem you'd have also have to catch it at the time the airport is doing a, a, a big improvement. Uh, for example, here we in, uh, in Portland, Maine, at the Portland Jetport, they just had a 20 year resurfacing of, of the runway. And eventually they'll be doing the they've recently done the, all, all the tarmacs and uh, and the taxiways. And so you kind of have to catch it when that's going on anyway, as opposed to making it a separate project. So you just have to circle around uh, the country as, as the airports are, 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 are doing that and following through. That's ideally, but we have found the airports are interested in doing at least tests. Uh, they'll just do it now and not wait till a project. But ideally, that's the way to do it is phase it in in their 10 year plan. And it just becomes part of the plan. And we know that's the way that it'll happen at most places. And uh, you've been working with the Ardmore Industrial Air Park on a prototype of this system. Where does that stand? Yeah, our, our prototype, we're just almost there. I mean, we are within days of pulling a plane. I We've bought a 727 aircraft, so we have a test bird. Uh, what we have at Ardmore is a 360-foot, 90-degree curve. That channel is in the ground. It's powered up. It's ready to go. Uh, the tow dolly, which is the above-ground apparatus, is complete. 
and it's operational, it's ready to go too. Where we where we're at with with the pull cart is up in Tulsa, where our uh, hydraulics manufacturer and uh, software company is, and they're programming it. And we are we've had a couple little glitches with programming. It's all off the shelf equipment, but it's never been configured in the configuration that we have. And they tell me that we're about we've been programming on it now about seven months, and we're just there. We had one one component that failed on us, so we've got a new uh, controller coming out of John Deere. It should be here this week, and we will apply power and begin testing. Uh, and once the tests are complete, then we'll take it to Ardmore, drop it in the channel, and start pulling a plane, and, and, and then we'll have a big public unveiling, in fact. And we'd love to have you guys come to our big public unveiling. Uh, the governor and congressman will speak. We're going to make a big media event out of it probably this next spring. Okay, very interesting. Yeah, that would be great to see. Perhaps tell us a little bit about ATS, the company itself. Uh, how many employees or, you know, what are the functions? What are the uh, the areas of expertise that are formed up together into ATS? Yeah, so uh, we formed our LLC in 2016. Uh, at that time, we put Oklahoma State University on contract to do the design development work. And like I was saying earlier, we've had up to five PhDs working on it. Uh, Dr. Robert Taylor heads the New Product Development Center, and he's been a key critical member of our team and kind of our chief engineer, if you will. He's got a Ph.D. in mechanical and electrical engineering. Uh, I've been with it for quite a while. We probably have about 10 employees. We're a small startup company. Uh, We've been privately funded to date uh, basically by two Polish businessmen. Uh, we have 11 owners in the company, and which I am one of the owners. Uh, we've got expertise in, uh, we've got a lawyer on the team. We have a, a CPA on the team. Uh, we've got a, a former Air Force maintenance, um, chief of maintenance, who's doing our maintenance planning. Uh, so we can reach out and uh, another uh, program manager from the Air Force. So I tapped a lot of Air Force expertise to bring them in on my project because that's where my background's at. And we've got a pretty pretty good, robust team. We, uh, we're we kind of to the point where we're na- ready to go that next level of infusion and cash. So uh, they tell us we need to have a working prototype and a couple of contracts to get to the next point. Uh, we've got four airports currently that are ready to put a system in. And by a system, I mean like a pushback at a gate, a test system. Uh, and then one wants to do a point-to-point ferry system in their maintenance area. But we've told them all, let's let's wait till the prototype's working so you can come see it work, and then we'll go to the next phase there. So that's kind of where we're at with the company and, and, and how we look. All right. Well, Vince, this is, uh, this is very exciting, and I think the prospects for the, uh, you know, the value, the savings that could come from this are, are just really impressive, both in terms of just cost, fuel savings, things like that, but... Um, also, in terms of uh, emissions reduction, and, and of course, that's becoming increasingly, I think, a, a focus of of every industry. So that's uh, that's great as well. And of course, we touched on the safety aspect of it uh, too. So uh, it looks like um, uh, you've got a bright future, a lot of uh, opportunity. It's been interesting to to hear about it. Yeah, maybe we can. Uh, uh, swing by when the uh, the prototype is operating and and see that firsthand. That would be pretty pretty exciting. Micah, what do you think? 
I think it sounds fascinating. I uh, I, I, I wish that uh, that our, our our friends at the at the Portland Jetport knew about it when they were redoing their runway because boy, it would which which just happened. It would have been great to have been uh, a test project and uh, be able to take pictures of it. So, Vince, where can people learn more about um, ATS or any other resources on on this kind of topic? Probably the easiest way is our website, which is just aircrafttowingsystems.com. And that's the way, or contact me. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm available for anyone. We've gotten so much interest. Went to the Farnborough Air Show this last, last two weeks ago, or three weeks ago now. Oh. And it's, we're now getting worldwide attention. I've gotten it from Bahrain. From I just got an invite this morning to go to a thing in Spain. And I'm going to go to India with the U.S. Department of Commerce uh, in September. So it's just, it's, it's amazing how this is just all of a sudden mushrooming. Wow. It sounds like you're a busy guy. <laughs> yes, sir. And on a semi-side note, as you probably heard us saying, uh, the uh, we, we have friends, uh, our, our, the, the director of the Portland Jetport, Paul Bradbury, has been a guest on the show many times. They just redid uh, their runways with their, their 20-year fix. But uh, Portland and the Portland Jetport is very, very environmentally friendly and always looking at different ways to uh, to uh, to save the environment. In fact, in, even in doing a setting up a... Uh, de-icing uh, refinery system where they collect all the uh, de-icing fluid, refines it, and resells it. Uh, so uh, that could be your excuse to get to Maine is uh, getting in touch with the uh, the director of the Portland Jet Board. Hey, I'd love an introduction. I'd, I'd love it. I'll fly up and then meet with him and, and see you guys. Terrific. Uh, Vince, what did you do in the Air Force? So I was uh, 29 years a senior civilian with the Air Force. I did things like I managed the B-2 bomber program. Uh, I ran depot maintenance out at Tinker, where I had about 10,000 folks working for me there doing that. I've been deployed to the desert and then some not-so-fun places. So just all kinds. of been in Pentagon four times. So all kinds of fun stuff. It was a great career. Yeah, and it sounds like you're still having fun. So that's, uh, that's the main thing. Absolutely. Thanks again for coming on the show, Vince. You bet. My pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me. Now our main man, Micah. King Kong. The Gay Divorcee, The Lost Patrol, The Informer, Submarine D-1, Gone with the Wind, Casablanca, They Died with Their Boots On, The Treasure of Sierra Madre, The Cane Mutiny, The Searchers. Any of those titles sound familiar to you? Yep, they're all films from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, and they all have at least one thing in common. Do you know what it is? Well, the thing I'm going for today... The person, actually, is Max Steiner. Recognize that name? Don't be concerned if you don't. Most people wouldn't. But it's a name I grew up with. Max Steiner, who was born in 1888 and died in 1971, composed over 300 film scores with RKO Pictures and Warner Brothers. He was nominated for 24 Academy Awards. Why is his name so familiar to me? And why am I talking about a film score composer on the Airplane Geeks podcast? Well, as John Ostrauer says, there's always an aviation angle. Do you have it yet? Are you with me? Some of you of a certain age may know what I'm alluding to. 
We Watch the Skyways by Max Steiner was part of the score of many of my favorite films. I love that tune. In fact, for me, it's one of those Velcro tunes, an earworm. Once I hear it, I can't get it out of my head for some time. It was the theme music for the films Fighter Squadron, Dive Bomber, Operation Pacific, Up Periscope, and Submarine D-1, among others, including the 1943 Daffy Duck Warner Brothers cartoon, Yankee Doodle Daffy. Daffy even sings it. Yup, there are lyrics. We watch the skyways, over land and the sea, ready to fly anywhere the duty calls, ready to fight to be free. Okay, so we're back to why I'm telling you about a song when this forum is all about aviation. I think I can put the blame on our friend, the late Launchpad Marzari. A few months before he flew west, he and I were talking on the phone when he said, You know, Micah, I always wanted to ask you this. You don't own an airplane. You don't fly and have no pilot's license. You don't work in the aviation industry and never have. You were never even in the armed services. How in the world did you ever become an airplane geek? Now, I'd been asked that before, but I never really gave it much thought. I usually roll off some kind of answer. Well, you know, growing up, my mom and dad, yada, yada, yada. But in fact, I couldn't really answer Launchpad when he asked, and I just rambled on for a bit as usual. Not that I'm not rambling now, but at least this rambling has a touch more thought to it. But it did get me to thinking, and I may have figured it out, at least a little bit of it. As I may have told you before, my father was a U.S. Air Force retread. After being drafted out of engineering school for World War II and serving his hitch in the Army Corps of Engineers in Europe, he was discharged an NCO. A few years later, during the Korean conflict, after finishing up his GI Bill-funded degrees in psychology, he was drafted again, this time as an officer for the U.S. Air Force Medical Corps. That was shortly after the Air Force became its own branch of service. Back then, a person being drafted for a second time was referred to as a retread, the way old tires are reused. Now you may ask, how did a man drafted out of a school of engineering end up becoming a psychologist? I asked that too. That was one of the few questions my father would answer regarding his military service, but he would do so somewhat flippantly. My dad would say, I used to get so angry building bridges in the European theater and then being required to blow them up. I just couldn't be an engineer anymore, and I wanted to learn more about why I felt that way. You see, my father didn't talk much about his service. As a kid, I had a bunch of questions, and I was fortunate that my relationship with my dad allowed me to ask them. I was also fortunate that his training and background as a psychologist allowed him to answer in ways that as a kid I could understand, but also in ways that allowed him to process some of his own feelings. There are only a few real stories from his time in the military that I remember him sharing with anyone, including me. One about how he fell off a truck in England just before D-Day, which left him with a concussion and hurt his back so badly that it affected him the rest of his life. He looked back on it as his lucky day. You see, as part of the Army Corps of Engineers, my dad would have been one of the first on Omaha Beach. That now fortuitous accident kept him out of the D-Day invasion, and Operation Overlord went on without him. Who knows if I would be here if he hadn't fallen off that truck. Another one of the few stories he would tell took place post-war, somewhere along the Belgium-Luxembourg-German border. He never exactly said where. I don't think he remembered, or maybe he never really knew. It was after VE Day, and things were relatively safe, so he was able to go out to a local bar and drink, apparently quite copiously. 
he told the whole story as a joke about being drunk as a skunk and how he ended up capturing a German colonel who had not surrendered and how he confiscated the colonel's 1914 32 ACP German Mauser sidearm and Iron Cross. If for some reason you want to hear the details of that story, you can find them in a piece titled Veterans Day that I wrote for the Airline Pilot Guy podcast back in 2016. It's on episode 246. There are a couple of other stories my dad would sometimes tell. One about how he was in the Air Force in the early 1950s and stationed in Texas, he went flying with a friend who owned his own small airplane. Apparently they got disoriented while flying, although he used the word lost. But you and I know pilots never get lost, but can occasionally get disoriented. Anyway, they were lost over the plains of Texas, and back then there weren't any real radio communications in personal GA aircraft. They spotted an unmarked runway and sat down to get directions. All of a sudden, they were surrounded by MPs holding rifles on them. My dad and his pilot buddy explained they were lost and were looking for Austin. The officer in charge raised his arm, pointing off in the distance, and said, That way! Now get out of here! Many years later, my father realized he and his buddy had stumbled upon some secret testing grounds for the atomic cannon. The only other story I remember him telling me were about the two watches he used to wear. One was given to him by his Aunt Esther just before he was called to basic training in the Army. It never left his wrist while he was overseas, and he wore it on and off until he died. Aunt Esther was my brother Rick's godmother, and Rick has that watch now. The other watch, my father described as his first professional fee as a psychologist. He was in the Air Force, and a friend of a friend needed counseling. Technically, he wasn't allowed to take her on as a patient, but my father was always ready to do what he could to help. He wouldn't accept any pay, but treated her as a client, as one would in private practice. He never really told me much else of the story, but explained that when treatment was completed, he was given a gift for all those counseling sessions. It was a long jeans watch he would alternate wearing with the one given to him by his Aunt Esther. I still have that watch today. Now I love those stories and still do. Sometimes I can hear my dad telling them over in my head, and he's been gone close to 15 years as I write this. But I had more questions about his service. Questions that, as I think about it, he probably couldn't really answer for so many different reasons. He'd seen the elephant. I hadn't and never would. But he did want me to understand and help me the best he was able to. So to do that, we would watch films together. He actually took me out to the movies to see The Longest Day, The Great Escape. He also took me to the theater to see Torah, 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 and Patton. Most of the time, though, we would watch movies on TV at home. The 1949 film Battleground with Van Johnson, John Hodiak, Ricardo Montalban, George Murphy, and James Whitmore was one of his favorites, and one he said was the most realistic. He told me that the first time he saw it in the theater, after returning from the war, he was taking cover behind the seats as he was watching it because it felt so real to him. Now I know that most of the films I've mentioned so far are ground-based. I haven't even started on a list of sea-based films, and don't even get me started about the submarine films my father and I would watch together. If you do, I'll tell you how Captain Edward L. Beach, the author of Run Silent, Run Deep, was a distant friend of the family. But I'll save that for another time. But then again, even one of the submarine films I used to watch with my dad, one I still watch regularly, is aviation-related. The plot of the 1943 film Destination Tokyo, with Cary Grant, John Forsythe, John Garfield, and my favorite Alan Hale Sr., is all about a secret submarine mission to get weather readings over Tokyo for the Doolittle Raid. 
Plus, it was in that film that I saw a PBY for the first time. It became my favorite aircraft right then. The 1945 John Ford film, They Were Expendable, featuring Robert Montgomery, John Wayne, Donna Reed, and my two favorites, Jack Holt and Ward Bond, was all about PT boats. But it was in that film I saw my first C-47. I've been in love with DC-3s and C-47s ever since. In that 1965 epic naval film In Harm's Way, Otto Preminger's attempt to try to make a Navy version of The Longest Day, we watched Kirk Douglas fly a PBJ solo from the right-hand seat. Yes, even then, I was a critic of aviation flight sequence inconsistencies. And by the way, a PBJ is not a sandwich. It's a naval version of a B-25. But my dad and I would watch a bunch of military aviation films, too. Some that come to mind include God is My Co-Pilot, Air Force, Bombardier, A Guy Named Joe, The Wings of Eagles, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, the Flying Tigers, 12 O'Clock High, Flying Leathernecks, This Man's Navy, which, by the way, was also known as both Airship Squadron Number no. 4 and Lighter Than Air. Yes, it had three titles. But Command Decision, Strategic Air Command, and Failsafe also come to mind. Oh, and in getting back to what I started this whole thing with, let's not forget Max Steiner. The film's Dive Bomber with Errol Flynn, Fred McMurray, and Ralph Bellamy, and Fighter Squadron with Edmund O'Brien and Robert Stack both feature We Watch the Skyways as a musical theme running throughout both of them. Now, when I was growing up, I never realized that while my father always enjoyed these films and really liked to see them with me, they also affected him in ways I truly didn't or maybe couldn't understand. Not that he had PTSD, but remember, he'd seen the elephant. Maybe I was dense. But it wasn't until I was in my 40s that I started to get it, maybe just a bit. In 1998, when Saving Private Ryan came out, I went to see it right away. As you all know, it was a fabulous film. I knew my father would love it, and I was going to be visiting him in a few weeks after I saw it for the first time. I suggested that we go see it together. My father was excited to go, both because he really wanted to see the film, and also, I think because he wanted to see it with me, his oldest son, who he had shared so many films with as I was growing up. This time, though, it was me sharing a film with him. Now, my dad knew this would be the second time I would be seeing Saving Private Ryan. I had told him all about it without giving away any of the plot twists and turns, and I told him how I thought he would really enjoy it. But it was during that film I realized that while he did enjoy watching films with me, they really did affect him in ways I just never formally understood. You see, all of a sudden... While we were watching the film, he was sitting next to me quietly crying. I asked him if he wanted to leave, but he said no. We sat through the rest of the movie, and afterwards my dad told me he really enjoyed it and thanked me profusely for taking him. Although we'd bonded over films all our lives together, this was unique for both of us. We talked about saving Private Ryan a lot for some time to come, but as you might imagine, we never did discuss how or why it affected him as it did. But we both knew it was a special time for us as father and son. So in a long way around, and to answer Launchpad's question from well over a year ago, the same question I've been asked by so many of you, how did I become an airplane geek? I think it was through questions and answers and watching films with my father, and perhaps a few other things. And I suppose that's the best answer I can give you. For the Airplane Geeks, here in Portland, Maine, this is your main man, Micah. 
Finally, Hillel and Rani Plout on the Air Personal Flying Vehicle. This is Hillel Glazer, Innovation and Entrepreneurship Correspondent for the Airplane Geeks podcast. I'm here with and have the pleasure of speaking to Rani Plout, CEO of Air. Rani, thank you for making time to speak with me and for our Airplane Geeks audience. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, Ani, anyone paying attention to the aviation industry should have seen your major accomplishment just a couple of weeks ago. Mazal tov. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, can you please tell us a little bit about the aircraft and the problem you're trying to solve? Uh, well, the aircraft is a two-seater electric vertical takeoff and landing uh, unit. Uh, we are based on a patent of ours that enables us to have a, a long range uh, we, we go somewhere between 60 to 100 miles, depending, of course, on conditions, on one charge, which makes it pr- uh, practical. Uh, we also use some automotive-based technologies in order to, to make the production uh, afford, both affordable but also uh, available for thousands of units per year. And uh, uh, frankly, we are not trying to solve a problem. We're trying to make people fly. Um, so if you think about Icarus, Tinkerbell, Peter Pan, uh, from Leonardo da Vinci, everybody's been thinking about flying. Lots of people have flown, uh, starting from Wilbur Wright and up to these days. Um, so people want to fly, and we're trying to m- enable this for them. So what would you see as your typical customer profile? Um, hobbyists, obviously, but they have to be able to afford it. So what would you think is the, is the kind of person or organization that would want your vehicle? Uh, we are trying to build uh, something which is uh, uh, which appeals to people again that wants to fly, have the space to use it, and have the means to buy it. Uh, we don't have a, a customer profile. Uh, over 160 people already purchased our aircraft. Uh, we have looked for uh, common grounds. We haven't found any. Uh, about uh, 50% of them are pilots. The others are not, uh, which is very appealing to us because again. We don't want to make people pilots, we want to make them fly. And in order to make them fly, we are reducing the complexity of, or the skill set required uh, to be a professional pilot and enable them to use the air for transportation, leisure, pleasure, what have you. Which category of aircraft are you aiming for? Obviously, you have a weight limit before it becomes regulated and so on, so you've got to be going for a certain category. Uh, in terms of certification and category, uh, we have been looking into the Mosaic project that uh, took LSA to a higher level. Uh, in terms of weight, it, it, basically it goes much higher than the, than the typical LSA, uh, uh, not by a waiver, but a specific structure that uh, the regulator should or uh, is supposed to put in place. Uh, when the Mosaic was, uh, was put on hold, so to speak, uh, we have turned to the, uh, to the TC route. Uh, we followed the same route everybody else has, uh, has followed, the 23 route, which became 2117B, so special conditions uh, last May. Uh, and the, we hope that this will change because uh, being a light sport aircraft or something of the sort will enable us to put more units at people's hands as fast as possible, which is our goal. Yeah, actually, uh, Jack Pelton, CEO of EAA, yesterday spoke a lot about Mosaic and how they're really pushing it. Are you working at all with EAA on uh, these matters? Uh, what brings you to AirVenture? Uh, so, first of all, we are, uh, we are members of uh, Gamma and EAA, of course, and, and we are talking to the FAA. We are very active in the field. 
Uh, we are happy to see many, many other companies have uh, active in the field. Of course, we are much smaller than, than Joby and the rest of the pack, uh, but uh, we are heard. Uh, and I must say that the regulator and, uh, and, and most of the people in the community are very, very uh, constructively listening and trying to react to the needs, uh, not of companies, but of customers. At the end of the day, we're trying to make customers fly. Uh, and, and there, thereby will be a successful company. But the, the first order is to make them fly as soon as possible. So you brought it up, appreciate that you brought up Joby, and there's obviously it's a very tight space. There's a lot of companies getting into All the big manufacturers out here are talking about their next big thing is going to be electric vehicles. So not all of them are EV tolls, but they're all talking electric. Um, plenty of EV tolls out here. We're going to see a demonstration later this week from one that's up at, closer to the flight line. So what makes your product unique or different from en- entering into a tight comp- competitive space that you want to be able to, you know, you, ha- you have to find a way to break through all that comp- competition noise. How's that going to be? That's, what do you look for that? Um, well, first of all, I'm weird about that. I'm not trying to compete, generally speaking. Um, I'm trying to win because I'm, I'm me, but that's not, that's not the point. I mean, the product, I, we think that there, are, there is a huge amount of people that are willing or, or have a desire to fly. Uh, if you think about the eVTOL space as a scale, let's say, uh, on one side you have the, the smaller aircraft, which are more hobby level, uh, part 103, uh, opener is a very good example, very, very nice design, nicely designed and well-operated aircraft that will be shown here in Oshkosh. The other side of the scale is the commercial part. Uh, some of them are smaller size, uh, so Volocopter is a good example. Uh, the big ones, Joby, Archer, uh, Beta and all the rest are, are going much, much bigger. Uh, we're trying to be the private car of the category, uh, which means uh, where, where LSA sits perfectly. So people that are going commercial, part 135, and must be type certified. Uh, we are uh, smack in the middle, uh, and we hope to uh, be owned by thousands of people. Uh, and we think we are differentiated by the fact that we are both affordable, easy to handle, and also have a practical range of uh, close to 100 miles. So uh, I'm assuming that you'll be trying to enter the U.S. market before your native country's market. It's a bit more difficult to find or understand to enter the Israeli market. Um, is that the plan? Or are you going to enter Europe or U.S.? Or what's the order of uh, entry? Uh, we see the, the U.S. market as a primary market. We are going to set up shop. Uh, we have a subsidiary here in the States. We're going to set up shop early 23 here. Uh, we're working with the FAA very closely. We're also working with other regulators, but FAA, by definition, is our, let's say, uh, spear, uh, spearheading, spearhead, uh, and we are working with them, followed by others. Uh, we have over the 162 units that have been ordered putting Oshkosh aside because I think we're going to double it here. Um, about 123, I think, or four are U.S. citizens. Uh, by the way, close to 20 are Israelis. Uh, and again, I must say that uh, we find the regulators all around uh, very cooperative and very, very supportive of looking for a way, actively looking for a way for this to happen as, f- as fast as possible. Uh, air mobility is, uh, is, is fun and helps the community in general. Uh, the problem with air, air mobility until now was the friction with the community. And uh, eVTOL brings a, uh, an answer to this question. So being vertical, so low infrastructure, and be, being very, very, uh, not very silent, but very much lower in noise, 
lowers the friction into communities and brings it to a situation where this can be used on a massive scale. So, um, which brings up another important consideration in terms, uh, let's say, regulation aside, because that's always the, the elephant in the room, the long pole in the tent, if you will. Um, regulation aside, what would you see would be barriers to adoption from, a, from a, an acceptance perspective from the consumer side to accept the product? Uh, do you, have you re- received feedback on that, or do you foresee um, certain hurdles that need to be lowered before the general larger population is accepting to buy and fly in one of these? So first of all, I think we have to talk about the definition of large or mass. Okay, When people say mass use or mass production, uh, people think about toasters or cars. Uh, and this is in the millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions. Uh, if you look at the car industry, they sell about 100 million units per year. Uh, a very large airplane manufacturer will manufacture less than 100 units per year. So if we sell a 1,000 units per year, we'll be the biggest airplane manufacturer on the planet, uh, but yet again, a very small-sized uh, company in terms of uh, mass production per se. So, uh, so we think that this... Uh, we are looking for the customers with low barrier for entry. Okay, and this means that, for example, the community that they live in allows for this to happen. In general, people... Uh, don't like so much other people to fly over them. Uh, and there are some certain places, if you talk about ranches, if you talk about going over bodies of water to the outskirts of the city, there are s- specific routes and specific use cases that calls for air mobility. And we are trying to, to use those paths of low, lower friction and easiness of, of adoption in order to penetrate the market. Uh, where, it goes from, where it goes from there, <coughs> sorry, uh, the answer is I don't know, uh, and and I think that the commercial or business in general have shown that the market is the best traction to follow, and not the definition of the of the entrepreneur. That's a really good point. So, um, what do you see your production rates over the next however many years once you're allowed to get into production and so on? What do you what are your plans for the first however many years starting? Uh, our production plans in general uh, in, incorporates thousands per year. So we are designing the aircraft from inception to be able to be manufactured in thousands. Uh, and this is unique for aerospace and very not unique for automotive. Uh, but the, the, the production rate that we are shooting for is thousands per year. Uh, the traction that we are experiencing the past few months, as said, we have sold uh, 160-something over a span of a very, very short period with almost no marketing. So we, all, we only put it out there, and, and we didn't ask even, even people, do you want it? We just showed it and said, this is what we have. Uh, so the, the organic traction from the market is substantial. Um, I think that the bottleneck, of course, the first bottleneck or the hoop to jump through is regulation, and I think that we will jump through it very, very soon. Um, the second one, of course, is production rate. Uh, we are uh, raising some funding for, for, the, for, this, for this specific reason. Uh, we are getting ready and we are building up the supply chain to support thousands. We will start from hundreds. Uh, as said, we will have more than, I, I think that we will have more than 500 for the first batch. Uh, we hope to get there and I expect to get there. And that uh, those first units are going to be built in the U.S.? Yes, all the units are going to be built in the U.S. We haven't concluded yet our specific locations. We are in negotiations with a few states 
in order to see where where to locate it. Uh, of course, there are the usual suspects, um, and uh, we'll, we'll choose really soon. Is the unit behind us here, the one that you brought to Oshkosh, is that the same unit that flew just a few weeks ago on the video, or this is just a local unit that you're able to truck up here? Uh, these, we have two prototypes. This is the, this is the non-flying one. Uh, they are identical. This is not a mock-up. So it has the, the, all the elements of the flying one, uh, minus the batteries and the, and the motors. Uh, this is something which is, uh, uh, shows the product in essence, uh, but this is not the flying one. The flying one is in Israel. That's really cool. I see there's a parachute in the system. Yes. Uh, generally speaking, our approach <laughs> is not to get into an, emer an emergency mode. If you talk about aerospace, normally you have regular operation and emergency operation. Uh, using fly-by-wire eliminates most of that. We're trying to, to eliminate the vast majority by definition of, of emergencies. Uh, we have an, a ballistic parachute. Uh, and, and this goes only in case of loss of all power, which is statistically is almost an impossibility because we have, for example, we have four different power lines and you can lose any one of those and still land. Practically, you can land with half the power and half the motors active in the, in the aircraft. Well, that's great. I know a lot of people just feel better with something like that, even though statistically it's never going to be used. So that's a good move on your part. I guess let's switch gears a little bit. How did you get into this? Like, what, is there, Did your background give you to this? Or were you just tired of being stuck in traffic? Or This is kind of a crazy thing to start doing, and you chose to do it. And why is that? So the cradle, the cradle of the company is coming from Chen, Chen Rosen. He is our founder and CTO. He, started his, he quit his J-job, so to speak, five years ago and started developing first the technological concept of adding a wing to a multi-rotor. Uh, after a lot of developments and trials, he came to a situation where it's, it's viable. Uh, I joined uh, Chen and, and Netanel. Uh, we are three founders in the company. I joined them a few years ago, first as an investor, and later took the helm as a CEO. Um, Chen's passion is, is aerospace. Uh, my passion is uh, bringing science uh, to, 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 to a situation where it brings real added value to people. Uh, I like fast things and beautiful things, I must admit. I like flying, I flew helicopters, I like races, uh, racing, I raced uh, both cars and motorbikes. Uh, it's a fun thing to do, plus it changes people's lives. That sounds really a lot of fun. I look forward to being able to sit in one, if not actually fly around in one. But um, So is there anything else you want to tell us about yourself or the company or where your plans or where do you go from Oshkosh? Anything you want us to know that you think the listeners might find interesting? Yes, so uh, first of all, we are going to present in the Detroit Auto Show. Uh, our debut of the unit was in the Kentucky Derby. Uh, we tend to think different and try to do things differently, not for the sake of being contrarian, but, but for the sake of being closer to the customer. And people with horses, money, and space uh, tend to like those things, and we have sold uh, many, many, many units in the Kentucky Derby. Uh, so we think of it as, a, as a, more as a vehicle, and less as an aircraft. It uses the air uh, for transportation, but we would like people to use as much as possible. Uh, we need more customers, uh, and we, we, we hope to see you on our website. 
Well, it's certainly a beautiful machine. Um, I'm sure our listeners will be checking out your videos and the links that we're going to include in the show notes to actually see the, the item, the vehicle, and all its parts and what they can and get to know more about the company. I'm sure that the company is going to be well represented. And what's the best way for people? Is What's the website name? Or it's AIR or something else. So uh, uh, the, the, the website is www.airev.aero. A-E-R-O. Uh, we are a very open-minded and transparent company. Uh, we have visitors on a daily basis. Uh, we open our doors completely. Uh, we tend to ask customers for feedback. So, uh, uh, and, and we like customers generally, not because they pay, but because we have their, their opinion to put and integrate into the, into the product. Well, that's great. I wish you all the luck that you need. Um, maybe I'll come visit in January and uh, I'll be overseas in Israel for work. Good luck. Congratulations on making it as far as you have so far and all those orders. I, God willing, you'll double your orders here as you hope to. And I hope to see you guys soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. This has been Hillel Glazer for the Airplane Geeks. I'll see you next time. Bye. All right. Thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. You can find us and show notes for this episode at airplanegeeks.com. Of course, we have a direct link to the show notes for this episode. That's at airplanegeeks.com slash 718. You can reach us via email at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. So please join us again next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. <laughs>